Let's pray together. Father, as we remember the words of the psalmist that your loving kindness is everlasting, that gives us such confidence and peace, the sense that in the midst of the turmoil which we often find ourselves, that you are there with us, strengthening, strengthening us, guiding us. And Lord, we come this morning acknowledging our need. We recognize that we need an infusion of the Spirit of God even this day into our hearts and minds, that we might think God thoughts and that our attitudes might be made in the image of Christ. Father, we ask that your Spirit will be with us in our study today. We know that the Word of God is made real to us by the power of the Spirit of God. And we know that in many institutions around this country, the Bible is studied, but not by believing people. And therefore, it just becomes a work of literature. But for us, Lord, it is the very word of God himself. And so as we uh, spend these moments together this morning, be with us and pray that our faith will be strong and that our hope will be great. In the name of Christ, amen. We have begun the 44th chapter of the book of Genesis, one of the very uh, emotional chapters in the book of Genesis in many ways. Uh, last Sunday, we touched on the first 13 verses of that uh, book, of that chapter, and you remember that uh, Joseph's brothers had come to Egypt the second time, and they had come hoping that everything will go smoothly, they'll get their grain and be able to return home. And they had to bring Benjamin because that was Joseph's requirement for them to receive grain. But instead, they got invited to Joseph's palace for dinner. And this, of course, really threw them because they didn't understand this whole situation. And when it was all over, they were glad. And they were on their way back to Canaan. They had the food that they had come to buy, the grain. And you remember in the first few verses, we're told that Joseph ordered his steward to put the money that they had brought to purchase the grain back into the mouths of their sacks and also to put his special, uh, it was kind of a religious bowl, uh, uh, probably of silver or gold that was used, silver, uh, uh, by the Egyptians. And he happened to have one in his household too. And it was put in Benjamin's sack. And, and then they were sent on their way at the dawn of the following day. And, and they were headed out of Memphis on their way home, hoping never to see the beautiful walls of that city of Memphis again. But not far out of town, Joseph Stewart came riding up with this uh, cadre of horsemen, certainly, and accused them of stealing from Joseph. Now, all of this was Joseph's plan. Uh, obviously, they hadn't stolen anything. The steward knew why that bowl was in the sack, but the brothers didn't know. And of course, they said, hey, we wouldn't steal anything. Why would we bring money back uh, for the first time the money was turned, returned to us and then steal something from the house of Joseph? I mean, I mean, the house of the man, as they knew him. That would be a foolish thing to do. And so they protested, of course. And then we read down... In uh, verse 9, 
with, uh, chapter 44, verse 9, with whomever of your servants it is found, that is this bowl, let him die, and we will also be my Lord's slaves. I mean, they were so sure that none of them had stolen that bowl that this statement was made. And then they hurried each man, uh, lowering his sack, to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and the steward searched, beginning with the oldest, down to the youngest. Now, of course, you remember how he knew who was the oldest and who was the youngest, because that's the way Joseph had seated them at the table at his house, at his palace. And, and that, of course, shook them up in the first place, because they couldn't understand how he could know that, because they'd never told him uh, the order of, of their ages. And then, of course, when the cup was found in Benjamin's sack, you'll notice in verse 13 their response. They tore their clothes, and when each man loaded his donkey, they returned to the city, that is, to Memphis. So we come into the story now again at a point where these brothers are emotionally as low as you can get. You've all experienced emotional lows, I know. I'm certain you have. There have been times when you felt like you were in the pit. That, that if anything else could go wrong, it certainly would. And, and that everything had gone wrong so far. And, and, and that's the way these men felt. So let's pick it up there, reading at uh, verse 14. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there, and they fell to the ground before him. And Joseph said to them, What is this deed that you have done? Do you not know that such a man as I can indeed practice divination? So Judah said, What can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? How can we justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me to do this. The man in whose possession the cup has been found, he shall be my slave. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. This is what you can call emotional and spiritual agony. These brothers are returning to Joseph's palace almost in a state of hopelessness. This was, of course, the last thing they thought could happen and the worst thing they could have considered to happen. Remember when they went to Joseph's palace the first time, the day before, they went with great fear. Now they re are returning and they are petrified as to what this will mean. And certainly the thought going through their mind is, my wife, my children, my father, the family back home, what are they going to do? We won't be bringing them any food. They're, they're, they're all going to die. We have failed. We're told in the passage here that they fell to the ground before him. Literally, they threw themselves face down on the ground before Joseph in, in, a, in, a, in an overt expression of submission and certainly in their hearts a measure of despair. What is very amazing about this is that Joseph does not tip his hand. Joseph looks at them, and uh, he maintains his tough exterior, and he accuses them of having stolen his bowl. 
It's got to be hard for him because he's the one who had the bowl placed there. And he knows his steward knows that's why the bowl was there. And yet to, to play this game, Joseph had to be a good actor. And he was doing the job very well. Then Joseph makes a strange statement, which we read in verse 15, where he said, Do you not know that such a man as I can indeed practice divination? I mean, he's playing this part to the hilt. He's, he's playing Egyptian the whole way here. And I think it's important for us to know that that's exactly what he's doing. He made this statement to, so that they might know why it is he knew where the bowl was. That he was a man who could divine the spirits. That the gods would tell him where the bowl was. And that these brothers would therefore be impressed that they were dealing with a man who could see beyond the natural realm. Now certainly the brothers were well aware of the fact that Egypt was an occultic nation. Egypt, I, I gave you that handout uh, several weeks ago about Egyptian religion. And uh, the Egypt, Egyptians worshipped a whole pantheon full of gods and goddesses, uh, many of them representing animal or plant forms, uh, others representing the sky and the earth and the sun and the moon, and very, very characteristic. In fact, you go back and study the societies of ancient Mesopotamia and, and ancient Egypt, and you'll find that the worship of the celestial objects was very, very common, as well as many animal objects. And we, we know this partly because of the many uh, sculptures that have existed, have survived to the present, uh, representing these uh, deities. And they also knew of the supposed supernatural powers of the Egyptian priests. And, and you and I know something about that because we've read the book of Exodus. And, and we know that uh, when Aaron's rod was thrown down, Moses' rod was thrown down, that uh, the rods of the Egyptian priests, uh, magicians, were thrown down, and they also were converted into serpents. And, and so there was a mysticism here. Now, they didn't know that yet, but they knew that this kind of thing was practiced in Egypt. And they also knew, for example, that the Egyptians believed that the Pharaoh was a god. The Pharaoh was the son of God. And so none of this was really foreign to them. And Joseph was implying here that they should have known they couldn't get away with stealing his bull because he could divine what had happened. He could see beyond the natural because he was equivalent to Pharaoh. Why is Joseph doing this? <laughs> Joseph is doing this to render these brothers without defense tearing down everything that they could have to defend themselves, any excuse that they could have, any hope that they could have in the flesh. He was destroying it all. He was intimating that the spirits were in league with him. All of this done was only to impress the brothers. Joseph is not here saying that he was a sorcerer, or that he practiced divination. He is not saying that. What he is saying is to impress the brothers that that is what they should think, but not that he actually did those things. The key here is now the response of the brothers. How do these ten brothers respond to this situation as they face it?
Judah emerges as the spokesman. And that's so clear as we read through uh, this portion of that chapter. He had made a promise to his father. He had promised his father that he would return with Benjamin or else Jacob could hold him responsible from now into eternity for not having brought his brother back. What we need to see here as we read about the response of Judah is the response of a wise and humble man. And oh, how we need such people today. People of wisdom and humility. And believe it, you know from Scripture, those two go hand in hand. Wisdom and humility go together. Because God rejects the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And the Scripture in James tells us that if we lack wisdom, we can ask of God, and he will give it give us wisdom, but he won't give a proud man wisdom or a proud woman. He will give wisdom to the humble, to the one who recognizes his or her standing before God and who God really is. You know, that's part of our problem, is failure to recognize who God is. The fear of God is the very beginning of wisdom. And without that fear of God, there is no wisdom. There's worldly wisdom, but worldly wisdom doesn't cut it. Worldly wisdom ends up flat against the wall when the chips are down. But it's the wisdom of God that comes only through the fear of God and the acknowledgement of who he is. And we have a hard time with that today because we live in a world that's so filled with material things and so much communication is coming at us all the time. And we hear so much junk in the name of God going on today that we can become confused. And that's why it's so important that we <clears throat> personally understand and study the Scripture to the point where we become able to distinguish between the genuine and the counterfeit. Because there's a lot of counterfeit out there. And there are people who, who have done very well and do well, but there's a certain upside of them that's counterfeit, too. And we need to see that. And God will enable us to as we study his word. But we cannot have that if we don't know the word. Because this is what God has said. And a lot of other people are telling us what God has said, which doesn't square with what he's really said. And that's what we need to be wise in. So here was the response of a wise and humble man. He makes no excuses. Do we ever make excuses before God? Do we ever go before God and say, well, Lord, I did this, but you have to recognize the fact that. Da, 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 da. There are no excuses before God. None whatsoever. We have no excuse for failing, for sin in our lives. And I think when we go before God in all honesty and say, Lord, I flat out sinned and there's no excuse for it, that's what God wants. Honesty. When you read uh, Judah's response here, it sounds a lot like Job. What can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? How can we justify ourselves? He knew it was impossible. Because for all practical purposes, they had been caught red-handed. There was the bowl in Benjamin's bag. That was a cold, hard fact. It could not be denied. 
Now, how it got there was very questionable as far as they were concerned because certainly Benjamin denied uh, to, the, to the ultimate that he had not taken that bowl. He had no idea how it got in that bag. And certainly the brothers had a suspicion because they knew the money had gotten back there and they hadn't put it there. And so it was just as easy to slip that bowl in along with the money. So certainly in, in their minds, they thought that this was a trumped up charge. So that they, and they make the statement of their donkeys earlier, would become slaves in the land of Egypt. How do they acquire slaves in Egypt? Well, this is one way, trump up charges against people. And of course, they have no trust in this man, jo well, in who, what is Joseph, but who is simply the man to them. They knew Joseph's attitude. All along, Joseph's attitude had been hard-nosed towards them. He, he had accused them of being spies, and now he accuses them of being thieves. And so, what's Judah going to say? We've been caught, as it were, red-handed. We know that you've not listened to us before or believed us our word before, so what can we say? How can we justify ourselves? What possible defense could we have? That's the way we need to come before God, with no defense. Honest, open, red-handed, only in our case, we are guilty. God hasn't trumped up anything against us. God deals with us completely openly and completely honestly, and that's how he wants us to come before him. Notice how long it's taken Judah to get to this place. We'll, we'll later on uh, in the lesson look at the steps again uh, by which this man has come. I think it's very, very interesting here how Judah responds in addition to what I've already emphasized. He ignores completely Joseph's claim to being able to divine, to, to his implication that somehow the spirits were filling him and he was able to know things that were supernaturally prized here. Instead, he credits God with what has happened. He doesn't blame God, he credits God. And there is a difference. Because he says, Elohim has found out the iniquity of your servants. In other words, he knows that God knew that they had sold Joseph in Egypt and that they had lied before their father for 20 years. And in effect, they had lied before Joseph when they came into Egypt because they just said, and, and our brother is not. Meaning, you know, he's gone, he's dead or something. They didn't say, well, we sold our brother down here. Do you happen to know where he might be? <laughs> No, they're, they're still living the lie, uh, even, even before Joseph there in Egypt. And so what he is saying it is, your gods have nothing to do with this. The Egyptian gods, in effect, are meaningless. It is Elohim, the true God, who is punishing us because of our sin. He knows. And of course, Joseph in his heart is saying amen. But he's not on the outside saying amen. I think it's really important that we notice Judah's sacrificial words in verse 16, where he says, Behold, we are my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup has been found. They, they don't say, He's the one, you take him, we're innocent. 
We didn't have anything to do with it. He says, we. In other words, Benjamin is not going to take the rap alone. This is a Christ-like attitude that Judah is expressing here. The brothers are willing to lay down their lives with Benjamin and for Benjamin, as it were. And you all remember, certainly, in John 15, 13, the words of Jesus to his disciples, where he said, Greater love has no man than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Greater love has no man than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And that's what the brothers are doing. Now, whether in the heart of Simeon and Levi and, and Naphtali and Dan are the, is the same attitude voluntarily coming forth, or whether Judah is the one expressing it for them all and the others are kind of reluctantly being drugged along, we, we don't know. But as I mentioned last time, it's not the profession of the mouth, it's the action that proves the love. We can profess from now till doomsday we love God and love somebody, but if our actions don't support it, it's just a lot of hot air. And that's what's real disturbing sometimes when we look around at some of the so-called Christian communities where they're theoretically worshiping God, and then you watch those people through the week and they live like the world. Where's the power? Where's the reality of that love and that commitment? It's not there. It's phony. God is not fooled. There are many who actually act as if God can be can be kitted along or fooled. If we, if we act, you know, we do the exterior things, then God will, will, will be pleased with us. And, you know, Jesus talks a lot about that in the Gospels relative to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and others. You know, they're all painted up on the outside, so beautiful, but inside they're full of snakes, dead man's bones. And unfortunately, there, there are many Christian, what, what they call themselves Christian communities today, where that's exactly what the reality is. And we need to be sure that that's not true of us, either collectively or individually. That we're forthright, that we're honest, that we recognize God knows everything anyway, so what's the use of trying to hide anything? It's, it's, it's stupid, to put it bluntly. Can you imagine Joseph's thoughts? His heart must have leaped for joy, first of all, when he saw them coming and he saw that it wasn't just the steward with Benjamin, but all the brothers were coming. That must have caused welling up within him of, of joy, of hope. And now, when Judah does what Judah does and says what Judah says right now, I think Joseph was very, very close to losing it right there. I mean, how... How long can you hang on to a facade? How long can you keep this mask up when you face such emotional stress as he was facing? Somehow Joseph held it together, though, because he had to run the test to its completion. He couldn't uh, abort the test at this point. He had to know for sure, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that his brothers were truly one with him in the faith. And that is so, so important for us. As it was for him, it's important for us. That we be one in the faith. And that, of course, is the point 
that Colson is making if you've watched those videos the last few Sunday nights. The, the point, and, and if you read the book, The Body, the point he keeps making through the book, uh, in spite of where you might disagree a little bit with what he says, the point he makes in the book is that we are one in the faith if we are born again believers in Jesus Christ, whatever we label ourselves. And that oneness is so important. And it's that oneness which is broken up today, not just because we are we're divided into denominations. That, that's not necessarily bad. But it's bad when one denomination puts itself over others and considers themselves to be the true believers and everybody else is false. Now, there are false denominations and, and, and people out there. But, but for one evangelical group to call another not true, simply because of some difference in practice. The verities of the faith, the true heart of the faith, is belief in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in the, in the salvation that came through the de life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, in the coming again of Jesus Christ, in, in the personhood of the Holy Spirit. Uh, these are the verities of the faith. The verities of the faith are not what these peripheral things that some denominations make the difference between whether you're in or out. And, and I think we need to be always aware of that. Joseph here reiterates the fact that he doesn't believe in guilt by association. He says, only Benjamin will be enslaved. The rest of you are free to go home, go back to your father, uh, go back to your families without fear of retribution. This is the ultimate and final test. They have come this far, but when, when, when the rubber meets the road, when the reality of enslavement is right in front of their faces, will they at that point break? Will they say, oh, okay, you can have Benjamin, we're going home. Or will they stay with it? And will they be men? And will they follow through with the words that Judah has spoken? Verse 18. Then Judah approached him and said, O my Lord, may your servant please speak a word in my Lord's ear. And do not be angry with your servant, for you are equal to Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? He's going way back to the first encounter now. And we said to my Lord, we have an old father and a little child of his old age. Now his brother is dead, so he alone is left of his mother, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me, that I may set eyes on him. But we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. You said to your servants, however, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. Thus it came about when we went up to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. Let me just break there for a moment. Remember, there is absolutely no reason for Judah to believe that Joseph contains one single ounce of mercy. He has not seen Joseph show any mercy up to this point. And so there's no reason for him to believe that, jo that Joseph's even capable of mercy. But Judah is nevertheless willing 
to put his life on the line and ask if he can approach the throne, as it were, and speak more directly to Joseph, to appeal to him on behalf of whom? Of his father. He's coming now on behalf of his father, the one before whom he had lived a lie for 20 years. How much had he loved his father? Well, not enough to not lie and, and, and tell this lie about something as important to Jacob as what had happened to his son Joseph. Remember, Joseph had been his dearly beloved son for 17 years. And only in the last year or two of that time had there been a second son of the same wife, Rachel. And so Joseph had been the focus for so long, for a decade and a half. It was no easy thing for him to lose Joseph. Judah, as he comes before Joseph, makes it a point to acknowledge that Joseph was to him, to the brothers, as same as Pharaoh. In other words, he stood in the position of Pharaoh before them. By which he meant that he recognized that Joseph had the power to enslave them, in fact, to kill them if he wanted to, and they had no higher court of appeal. They could not appeal to Pharaoh because Joseph was as Pharaoh to them. And so he knew this was it. This was the end of the road. This is my highest court of appeal right now before Joseph this very hour. And so Judah recounted the conversation that we read part of here in verses 18 through 24 that they had had with Joseph back the first time they had come. What, a year before? A while back. We don't know. It doesn't say in Scripture how long it was. However long it took them to eat up the grain that they had brought back the first time. So let's just say a year uh, or so. Uh, because now we're two years into the famine at this point, so it could easily have been uh, a year before. So he's recounting that particular conversation, and particularly their responses, whereby they emphasized their aged father's love for the youngest son, Benjamin. See? He's trying to find out if inside this hard-bitten person there is even a slightest cord of mercy slightest little tidbit of compassion. Would he care at all about our old patriarch father and his love for this, this child of his, of his old age? Could he respond at all to this? Verse 25. And our father said, go back, buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. And your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. And the one went out from me, and I said, Surely he is torn in pieces, and I have not seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm befalls him, you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. Now, therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will come about when he sees that the lad is not with us that he will die. 
Thus your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant our father down to Sheol in sorrow. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame before my father forever. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, lest I see the evil that would overtake my father. You see the subtle change yet further in Judah? This is his last ditch effort. This is the final supreme attempt by Judah to appeal, if no other way, to the possible mercy of the man. Given the, dis, the, the attitude that, jo, that Joseph had displayed up to this point, Judah really didn't have any grounds for much hope here. I'm sure he didn't go up saying, I can convince him. I'm going to get him to change his mind and, and Benjamin to go free. I don't think he had that attitude at all. I, this was a desperate hope. I mean, a desperate effort. I, I think an effort without much hope. Whatever hope he had was based on the point to which he had come to understand Elohim, Yahweh. And, and this has been a slow process in his life. And, and this is not a man walking up here with the full confidence of God, having met God by a burning bush someplace. He's going by what he had heard about God from his father and his grandfather and that he had heard about the encounter of his great-grandfather, Abraham. This is the strength in which he was going. There's no record that he had an impersonal encounter with God at all himself up to this time. And, and so, how much faith does he really have in God? A measure of faith. Enough to acknowledge that God was punishing them for their sin, and that takes a measure of faith. Uh, and, but, but he's going up in this... this almost forlorn hope here before Joseph. And so he went on to further recount the conversation that he had had with his father, Jacob, just before the trip, this final trip to Egypt. And he reported Jacob's appeal on behalf of his youngest son. And as we read down there in verse 27, Judah related that Jacob referred to Rachel as his wife. Not as one of his wives, as his wife. Implying that she was his true wife, his chosen wife. And what he was doing yet at this point in his life was shunting Leah and the other two into a secondary position. As you read through Scripture, we are both sometimes uh, dumbfounded and at the same time encouraged by the fact that the men and women of God in Scripture have, as it were, feet of clay. They fail. They have blown it royally from time to time. And here Jacob is, the third of the, of the troika of patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet even in his old age, he can't quite get away from showing favoritism. He hasn't arrived at that place where he needs to recognize that, that Leah and the other two ladies are his wives also. 
He just keeps putting Rachel, although she's been dead for 20 years, putting her in the place of priority. And of course, this favoritism has brought sorrow in the family. I mean, the whole thing started because of jo uh, Jacob's favoritism. But God used it to accomplish his purpose. That doesn't mean we should go ahead and be jerks so that God will make, you know, use it to do something good. No. You know, Paul, Paul says, what shall we do? Shall we go ahead and sin that God's grace may abound? No. Forbid it. But we are. We are going to sin. In fact, we might have even have sinned sometime this past week. It's very possible. In fact, even since we got up this morning, it's possible. <laughs> Hopefully not. But, but the point is that we don't rejoice in that. We hate it. But we keep going to God for forgiveness. And hopefully, even Jacob. Increasingly, Judah kept referring to his father and to themselves as Joseph's servants. You'll notice that. We read through that, didn't you? My Lord's servant. And he refers to his father as my Lord's servant. We're all my Lord's servant. Well, you know, what's interesting is that the word used there the Hebrew word abed can mean servant or it can also mean slave. And what Judah is doing here is doing what was proper in those days, and that is when you, when you stood before a superior, you constantly referred to yourself as my Lord's servant. But in reality, this is also uh, 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 infused with the fact that they could very much be slaves of Joseph's at that moment. And from then on, they might be talking of not just a polite form of conversation, but of reality. We may be this man's slaves. It's interesting that Judah's primary appeal was not to Joseph's mercy upon Judah, or any of the other brothers, not even upon Benjamin, but upon Jacob. Will you not have mercy upon our old father, the patriarch of our clan, who will die if we don't bring Benjamin back? Judah hoped, of course, that somehow, possibly, Joseph's early inquiries about the health of their father when they returned to Egypt, the second time, he said, how is your father? Is he alive? Is he well? And, and Judah thought, maybe because he inquired about our father, he might have a little compassion upon him. And then he furthermore emphasized his promise to bring Benjamin back safely. And that failure to do so would send Jacob to the grave. The term Sheol is used often in the Old Testament and sometimes it means <clears throat> the afterlife, the place of afterlife, but very commonly it simply is a term meaning the grave. And that's what it means here. Joseph's test of his brothers bore ultimate fruit. Now, let me read that again in verses 33 and 34. Now, therefore... Please let your servant remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. 
For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, lest I see the evil that would overtake my father? Judah has come full circle. He earlier had said, we will be your slaves here along with the lad. Now his appeal is, let them all go free and keep only me. Let me be your slave. Let me be Benjamin's substitute. You said all could go free but Benjamin. Let me be in Benjamin's place and let them all go free. Judah is willing at this point to commit his entire life from this moment on, never seeing his wife, never seeing his children, never seeing his father again or his brothers, and being a slave there in Egypt to this man Joseph. In effect, he became a type of Christ, offering himself as payment for Benjamin's alleged crime. Now, it was in his eyes purely an alleged crime. I don't think Judah was convinced that Benjamin stole that at all, but nevertheless, he was willing to be the substitute. He would take Benjamin's punishment so that Benjamin could go free. Does that sound like anything you know from the New Testament? Certainly. Christ bore our punishment so that we might go free. Does that ever really hit home? In 1 John 3, verse 16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. How do we know love? First, his example that he laid down his life for us, and then how do we express that love? By we being willing to lay down our lives for one another. And by the brethren, it means other believers. What we see today in the world is so much the opposite, isn't it? Those who want to lord it over the brethren, who want to be big cheeses in the kingdom, and they build their little empires, and we've seen several of them crash in the last decade or so. Because God will have no equals or no one who's trying to be his rival, which is what they end up being or attempting to do. But servanthood is what this is talking about. And the real evidence of a true leader is his or her willingness to serve others rather than being served. Remember the little story where Jesus credited the Roman centurion for having a measure of faith concerning the healing of the, his servant? And he said, I tell this one to do this and he does it, and I tell that one to do this and he does it, and, you know. But, but that's not the way the kingdom of God works. The kingdom of God is not set up like the Roman military was. Kingdom of God is not set up so that here's God up here and he has all these little demigods down below, you know. And, and Joe Blow over here is kind of the little god of this little kingdom over here under God's authority, of course. But the, No. <laughs> he has servants scattered through his kingdom. And we're here to serve one another. I find that one of the biggest problems that we tend to face as believers is comparing others with ourselves and comparing ourselves amongst ourselves. <laughs> 
and to say, well, I may not have done too well here, but I did better than he did or than she did. And, uh, you know, the scripture teaches us that we're to consider each one of us the other better than ourselves. Sometimes that's hard to do. <laughs> Even if we're being realistic, sometimes it's hard to do. But, of course, that's exp expressing an attitude. It's not that we should say that Joe Blow is, is, is better uh, at this if you clearly see that he's not. But, but our attitude is to be one of a servant, as Christ was a servant, and as Judah here is expressing the ultimate servanthood. He was giving up his life. He was surrendering his life. In effect, he's as good as dead. Because if he becomes a slave in Egypt, he has no longer control of his own destiny, not even what he did the next day. It would be all under Joseph or to whomever Joseph gave him. Be under that person's command. So jo Judah was surrendering his life completely and totally in this situation. How could he do this? Was this the work of the flesh? Well, I, you know, the obvious answer to that is no. Because you all and I know, I know that the work of the flesh is to exalt ourselves. You all probably, or many of you have probably read screw tape letters. And, and in there, Lewis points out how each little demon, you know, just wants to suck up all the power into himself and all the exaltation into himself. And Satan is the ultimate sucker, you know, taking all of this. And uh, we emulate Satan when we seek power and glory unto ourselves. Judah was empowered by the Spirit of the living God. That's the only way he could come to this place. There was no way he could come to the place where he said, take me and let him go free, except by the power of the Spirit of God. This is one of the most explicit examples in all of the book of Genesis, even though it's not stated per se, but of the reality of the working of God's Spirit in the life of a man. He has reached his spiritual potential. Slowly but surely, he has risen to a level of maturity beyond that of his brothers. Certainly, there were many steps in the spiritual development of this man that are not expressed in, this, in the pages of Scripture. But let me again recount to us the three steps before this one so that we can get them all together in one thought pattern. If you go back to Genesis 37, 26, this is the first very, very teeny, teeny little step. They were going to slay Joseph. The dreamer's a jerk. Let's kill him. Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Now that's, a, to us, you know, it's a very small step. But nevertheless, he is conscious here of the fact that he is our brother. We ought not to lay our hands on him, implying that we would be guilty before God. And then in the 38th chapter, verse 26, this is the whole Tamar episode. And Judah recognized them, that is, his uh, signet and his staff, and said, She is more righteous than I am, inasmuch 
as I did not give her to my son Shelah. I mean, he's talking about a daughter-in-law who committed an act of prostitution, if you will, and he's saying she is more righteous than I. Not, not saying, you know, he could have had her destroyed. In fact, he was talking about doing that. But when, it, when the reality of what had happened came to the surface, he recognized that he was a sinner. That's where it starts. Because if we don't recognize our sin, then our hope of spiritual growth is, is, is truncated. It just can't happen. We've got to be open and honest and recognizing who we really are before God and, and recognizing for our own sakes who we are and not playing a game because God isn't fooled and you'd be surprised how many real Christians aren't fooled either. And then chapter 43, verses 8 and 9. Judah said to his father Israel, Send the lad with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die as we as well as you and our little ones, I myself will be surety for him that you may hold me responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame before you forever. Easy words to say when the reality of that possibility isn't right, isn't there. But now, finally and ultimately, when the reality is staring him in the face, he goes through with this promise. He does as he had proclaimed he would do. This is the final episode, as far as we know anyway, as far as scripture records. And it's, it appears that Judah has assumed the leadership of these brothers and that, that this assumption of leadership occurred before they ever got back to the palace. In fact, it could be Judah's words and actions that committed all the brothers to returning to Memphis. It could have been that it was he who said, we're all going back with you, so get it on the donkeys, boys. We're all going back. And that seems to be the case because reading back in verse 14 of 44, remember it's, notice how this, did you ever notice this? It doesn't say when Benjamin and his brothers, or when Reuben and his brothers, or when the brothers. It says when Judah and his brothers. I mean, Judah is specified here. He is isolated, picked out. He is set up. This implies that he has already assumed leadership. He has already taken charge of the gang, as it were. Reuben has aborted his leadership. Simeon and Levi are, are, are just too rascally. And, and so here is Judah. Now, he's no angel, huh, as we well know. But he has assumed leadership, and it is acknowledged here in the pages of Scripture. And it was he who pled the cause of Benjamin before Joseph. Does this bear ultimate fruit? Does this have lasting repercussions? Hmm. It sure does. 49th chapter of Genesis. Jacob goes through his sons here, making kind of a, a, a prophecy, a, a statement of reality here, a combination of things. Verse 3, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Sounds great. Uncontrolled as water. 
you shall not have preeminence. You should have had preeminence, but you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it, he went up to my couch, and referring to his uh, adultery with Jacob's wife, Bilhah. Verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let not my glory be united with their assembly, because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they, they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And does this happen? Yeah, Levi becomes the tribe of the priests, and they're scattered all through Israel. They have no homeland. And Simeon kind of floats around and ends up having a little enclave right in the heart of Judah. And then it comes to Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the, from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion. As a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Judah became the dominant tribe. You read through the, the rest of the Pentateuch and on in the, New Test, uh, in the Old Testament, and you discover which was always the largest tribe. Judah was always the largest tribe. The, the tribe which often had the leadership role in, in what the tribes did was Judah. And it would be from the tribe of Judah that the royal family of David would be drawn. And after the division of Israel, when Saul did his little thing and, and God uh, came in and raised up David and, and David Solomon and then Solomon's son Rehoboam took the way of the world and God split the kingdom to Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and you had a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah, that southern kingdom would be held in the hands of, uh, it would be primarily Judah. Benjamin would be a little affixed there, and many of the tribe of Simeon would be living in there, but it was predominantly Judah, and therefore the people are called what? To this day, the Jews. They were not called the Jews then. They were the Hebrews, the Israelites, the Jacobites. But later, because of the preeminence of Judah, they became the Jews. And Christ would be born in Bethlehem of Judea, of the tribe of Judah. In Revelation 5.5, Jesus is referred to as the lion that is from the tribe of Judah. Why? Because it is Judah who emerges here as the most Christ-like of all the brothers and the one most willing to give himself even as Christ would later give himself for another, as Christ would give for the whole world. Well, next week we'll go into chapter 45.